Um, before the service began, I, I, I had a very strong impression from the Lord that uh, there, there is, uh, up in the upper quadrant over there, there is a, a, a cloud of darkness. And I had a sense that there is someone in that section that is having suicidal thoughts and gro you're bombarded with grotesque thoughts that are uh, making you very, very distraught. And so I just want to come against this. So if you just would bow your heads for a second, Lord Jesus, uh, in, 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 on the basis of your shed blood on the cross and on the basis of my representation of your kingdom, I command in your name any demons that might be trying to destroy and kill anyone in that section of the church to leave. You have to leave now in Jesus' name and never come back. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and to fill the area that was vacated and help this person to clean out the garbage inside that gave uh, the demon an entrance to intimidate and bother them and lift the darkness to anyone who is in this particular section. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, thank you. Uh, I, you know, I'm just sharing what, what I believe the Lord told me. Um, so there I was. It was 2.30 in the morning, <clears throat> May 24th, 2003. Um, I don't wake up uh, except to go to the bathroom now. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things. But I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a light sleeper. But at 2.30 on Saturday morning, uh, May 24th, 2003, I bolted up in bed at 2.30. And I was dripping with sweat. Uh, my heart was pounding through my chest. I can remember feeling electricity from my brain down and through my chest and stomach area, and my body was full of adrenaline. And I was, I was, it was like there was a armed robber in the house, and I was terrified and filled with horror. I got up and I looked around the house to see if there was anybody in there. And my wife got up and, and met me in the living room and said, honey, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I just know that I'm horrified and I'm scared to death and I don't know what I'm afraid of. And that weekend, we have a half a mile block around our house and I walked around that block I don't know, 75 to 100 times, battling and wrestling with some thoughts that were driving me insane. And little did I know that that event at 2.30 in the morning would begin the worst seven months of my entire life. I'm 71 years old, and it was horrible. I had a nervous breakdown that was filled with panic attacks and uh, fragmentation. I was in a fetal position on the couch for the first month. Ladies and gentlemen, when the phone rang, I was scared to death. I didn't want to look at my email. I was horrified. 
Um, I was scared to drive on the freeways. Well, that might have been a normal fear. I don't know. But, but I couldn't drive on the freeways. It was too, too much stimulation. Now, um, let me give you a little background. I have a genetic predisposition towards a generalized anxiety disorder from my mom's side of the family. And I can trace that through four generations. If you look at my grandfather and my mom and her siblings and then my cousins and me, and then I have two daughters, one who looks like me, who's got an anxiety disorder, and the one that looks like her mother's completely healthy and, you know, I don't like to choke her sometimes. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I have a genetic predisposition. Some of you who suffer anxiety and depression, and I'm just gonna use anxiety now for both of them so I have to keep saying them both, but some of you suffer from anxiety, uh, have this as a predisposition that you've inherited. Um, now that doesn't mean that you're determined that you'll have, there's no determinism here. You have, you can choose to get out of it, but it just means that those of us who have this inheritance have more of a tendency to be that way. It's more of a default position for us. Uh, um, I also believe, as we'll see later, that anxiety is overwhelmingly a learned habit. Uh, and I learned from the best because my mom was a nervous wreck. And I observed how she handled fear, and I practiced what I learned. And I have had anxiety and fear through most of my life, but it wasn't until 2003 that I had I, I, I became completely dysfunctional, for, and it lasted for seven months. I got on some medications and got in some good therapy and read the Psalms and prayed a lot, and eventually, by, by doing those things, I was able to get well, uh, and I, I was okay for the next 10 years. 2013, the third week of May, <laughs> School, I, I finished the last day of my school responsibilities. I'd had a very, very stressful school year, my, the worst I've had in terms of stress. Once the school year was over, I was walking to the parking lot to get in my car, and two-thirds of the way, I got hit with a bolt of electricity, figuratively, because I instantaneously had a panic attack in the parking lot. And I felt, I'm telling you, if you've had one, it was full bore. And, I, and I, it lasted five months. Now here's the deal. Toward the end of that time, the Lord said to me, Jay, I don't want you to waste your suffering. I want you to use your research skills, and I will guide you, and I want you to read everything you can on anxiety and depression, and I want you to begin to practice the things that you believe are helpful, and then share them with my people. And I felt a mission to do that, and so I, I did, and I just wrote a book that came out two months ago called Finding Quiet, which is the, is the condensation of a lot of things that I learned that were life-changing.
But, but the thing that I want to communicate to you this morning is that there are, in Finding Quiet, four practices that I do, have done every day for five and a half years. And after doing these practices for, in my case, it was two and a half to three months, I, I, was, I was changed. I was changed. And I, I'm gonna be, I'm, a, I'm not a BSer. Uh, I'm gonna tell you the truth. Um, I've not experienced anxiety or depression hardly at all for five and a half years. And thank you, thank you. Boy, believe me, I do. Believe me, I do. And what I want to give you hope because what, what the, I, I am still on a dose of, of med, a maintenance dose of my meds, um, uh, but, but the main thing that changed me were these practices that I began to do every day. And uh, just as evidence that I was different, <laughs> beginning in August of 2015, for the next two and a half years, I had eight surgeries. I had three life-threatening cancers that were all different from one another, and I had surgeries for all three. I had a, a pacemaker put in. Um, I, I, I don't know which parts are mine and which aren't. Um, uh, I had uh, chemo, radiation, and uh, during that time, I was just so happy and peaceful and full of joy and unaffected that my wife and my daughters and my close friends, one of my guy friends said, dude, what in the, what in the world is wrong with you? I mean, you ought to be, well, you're different. And my wife and uh, my, my daughter said, dad, you're, you're just different because I wasn't affected by any of it. It, it, didn't, it didn't matter to me. Um, and I'll explain one aspect of that in a little bit. But um, so, so that is my own personal journey. And I want to give you two big picture items, and then we're going to go into get specific here. One big picture item is this. Uh, anxiety is now the number one mental health problem in the United States. It is a replaced depression. Uh, and depression is number two. Uh, during the last 12 months, are you ready for this? 20% of the American population, a little over 40 million people, have suffered an anxiety, a severe anxiety disorder attack of some kind. That, that doesn't count, that's from 18 years old and above. Doesn't count teenagers, and it doesn't count people who just are dealing with kind of discomforting anxiety, but it doesn't rise to the level of being an attack or a disorder. So we, we, our country is filled with people that are depressed and anxious, including Christians. Where there are a large number of you in this room, in fact, everybody here has either got depression and anxiety, or you know somebody in your family, or you have a close friend that's suffering from that. This is something that we have got to find help in in the church, and we need to be able to offer help. So that's what I'm gonna to try to do this morning. Here's the main thing I learned in my research. Did about 18 months and read every, everything in sight. And um, 
the, uh, the main thing I learned is this, that anxiety is largely, not entirely, please, but anxiety is significantly a, an ingrained, learned habit that can be unlearned with the proper practices. It is an ingrained, learned habit that you can unlearn with the proper practices. Now, I'm going to unpack that in two ways for the rest of my time. First, I'm going to give you a context of what I just said, biblically and neuroscientifically. And then I'm going to apply that to one of the four practices that I do every single day and teach you how to do it uh, and then get, and give you a conclusion. Are you ready? Okay. Um, I, I want to give you a biblical context for this statement about anxiety and depression being an ingrained learned habit. And uh, I'd like you to turn to a very bizarre passage uh, in Romans 6, uh, verses 11 through 13, and then verse 19. So Romans 6, verses uh, 11 through 13 and 19. Okay, now listen to, to what Paul says. Um, consider yourselves dead to sin, okay, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so, therefore, so this, is, this is what you do. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it. Now, where does sin reside? Remember, Sin are things that are contrary to the way God has taught us that he wants us to be. And I don't believe that anxiety and depression are, are sinful, except maybe in some cases, but I think it's basically a, a way that we were not meant to function. And God wants us not to be that way. And so when he talks about uh, sin residing uh, in our mortal body, he, that would include anxiety and depression resides, listen, not in your thought life and not in your feelings, but in your body. Let's keep going. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of uh, Unrighteousness. I believe the term means to just to not obey God's law, but I also think it's more pregnant than that. I think it means to be dysfunctional, to be fragmented and, 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 and ruined and torn inside. I think part of this includes being, being filled with anxiety and depression. But, so what we do is we present ourselves to God as those that are alive from being dead, and here's the key, present your members to God as instruments of shalom. Shalom means a very, very deep sense of peace and well-being, joy, and a, a sense of deep satisfaction about life. And it can be in the midst of hardship, but there's a deep stability. So he says, 
uh, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, he goes on in verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to shalom, resulting in sanctification, where that would include the, you would ex actually experience the fruit of the Spirit. What in the heck does that mean? First of all, what does it mean to say sin is in my body? And what does it mean to present my members? What are my members? Uh, there are two kinds of members. There are regions of your body, like your, uh, your facial region. I wouldn't consider that an organ, but your forehead and your cheeks and so on. That's a, that's a member. And then your organs, your heart, your brain, your stomach, uh, and so on. All right. We are to present our organs and the regions of our body to God as instruments of well-being, of shalom, including holiness. But it's, it goes beyond that as, as experiencing a life filled with joy and peace. And this is not just empty words. This is the way it's done for the most part. Now, how do you present your, your heart or your facial region to God? Um, uh, how would you present your stomach? I mean, uh, let me try to make sense out of this by talking about golf. And I'm gonna have to communicate to you first four concepts. Just if, write them down, or they're in the book if you're going to get it. But here are the four concepts uh, that are needed to understand the passage. The first is the notion of a habit. A habit is a tendency to act, think, or feel a certain way without choosing to do so. Um, we have tendencies to act or think or feel certain ways without choosing that. It just happens because it's habituated. The way you write the letters of the, of the English alphabet when you're writing is a habit. You don't think about the letters. You think about what you're saying. When a baseball player gets up to swing at a pitch, he doesn't think about, well, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. He's trained his, his, the members of his body, in this case his arms, uh, to, with muscle memory, to just respond habitually to that sort of pitch. If he thought about it, the ball would be past him. So he, the reason that they, they, they practice is they form habits in their arms and shoulders and so on. Um, and so uh, a habit is a tendency to think, act, or feel a certain way. Some of us have a habit of getting up and dreading the day and being sour and looking at it in a gloomy sort of way. That's a habit. You can get rid of it, but it's a habit. Um, so, uh, now, what is character? Character is the sum total of your habits. So your character includes your good and bad habits. And some of your character's good because you're habituated to be, let's say, kind to people. Other, other parts of your character may be 
uh, bad because let's say you're habituated to talking all the time in a group, which becomes a monologue after a while because you're the only one talking, and that's the way you deal with your anxiety. Okay, and so uh, uh, the, the third notion is your body, uh, and your body is just uh, the biological aspect uh, that has your, contains your soul, and it includes regions and organs. I've already covered, that's your body. It's a biological um, uh, aspect of you that contains your soul. Now, finally, flesh. The word flesh is sarks, the word body is soma, and a lot of times they're used, and they mean the same thing. But in the New Testament, there is what is known by New Testament scholars as a very specific uh, usage of flesh. And it is used in the passage I just read you. And in that sense, flesh is the um, ingrained habits in the body that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture and the nature of the kingdom of God. Let me just say that again. They, they are um, ingrained habits that reside in specific parts of our body that, are, that trigger thoughts, feelings, and behavior that are contrary to the way God made us to function. And in this case, they trigger anxiety and depression in a way that God meant us to have those members trigger peace and joy. So now, what does it mean to present your members to God as an instrument of righteousness? Well, let's, let's take a, go a guy who plays golf. And let's suppose that his shoulders and his wrists are filled with golf righteousness. Now, what, what of course I mean by that is that the, he has trained these parts of his body to habitually, due to muscle memory, to habitually trigger movements that are, make him good at playing golf. He's got it down in his, it right here, okay? This has got golf righteousness in it. Because when he gets up to swing, he doesn't think about his swing, he just swings, and this part does the right thing. The problem is that he has got golf flesh in his hips and midsection, because the way he rotates that part of his body, it contains golf flesh. And what that means is it's a, it contains bad habits that make the ball slice, or that are counterproductive to being good at golf, that is, at, at achieving golf righteousness, which would mean that you would be a flourisher at golf. So what he needs to do is to present these members to a golf instructor to get rid of his golf flesh and to replace it with golf righteousness. So what does that mean? Does it mean that he reads uh, some books by golf instructors and, and, and thinks about them and then it gets a CD with golf music and he gets kind of pumped up about it and, 
And you, just, you know, you read, no, that's not going to be it. Does he go to the golf instructor and get on his knees and say, Here's my, here are my hips and my waist, they're yours, uh, do what you want with them, live through them, uh, and so on? No. What do you, how do you present those members of your body to golf instructor in order to make them instruments of golf righteousness and get rid of the golf flesh? Answer, practice, practice, practice using those body parts under his supervision. He looks at your swing and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do it 3,000 times over the next eight weeks. And it is going to feel awkward at first. In fact, he'll tell you, learning to do anything new, whether it's swinging a golf club or learning Spanish or learning to get rid of anxiety and depression and replace them with peace and joy, are habits that are gonna, you're gonna be lousy at the practice at first and it's not gonna do you any good. Why? Because you're not good at it. You haven't formed the habit yet. So you get up there and what do you do? You focus on, you don't have to focus on this part, you got that down. You focus on your hips and, and your waist. And you swing the way the golf instructor tells you and it doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel like it's doing you any good. But they've, if you, if you do this, what I'm gonna recommend anywhere from 22 days to a little over three months, three and a half months, you will be changed because you will replace certain ingrained habits that reside not in your waist and hip, but in your brain and heart muscle, which are the number one members of your body that you have to present to God if you're gonna get rid of depression and anxiety. Now, there's, you can also take meds and see counseling. This is not a substitute for that. Um, uh, so do you understand that Paul is teaching us that to present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness means to take specific parts of your body that are causing the problem and to do certain practices over and over and over and over again, realizing that when you start it, you're not gonna, it's not gonna do any good, blah, 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 and, and eventually uh, you will f get rid of the bad habit and form new habits, and the flesh will disappear in that part of the body. Remember, those are just habits contrary to the way God made us to work, and it will be replaced with good habits, fruit of the spirit type habits. So, so, so exam this is an example. They, they, um, if, you, if you have a person who talks all the time, what they need to do is to present this, this, their lips and mouth to God as instruments of righteousness, which means keeping their mouth closed when they're in a group. So before they go to a group, they say to themselves, I will close my mouth and I will keep it shut. And you work on it, you, only unless somebody says hello and I'll be courteous, but I'm not gonna talk. And then you, 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 know, you can't do it. But after about two and a half months, you stop talking all the time. If, did you know that if you present this part of your body to God as an instrument of, right, of shalom, 
How do you do that? You practice smiling every day, even if you don't mean it, and even if you're sad. You practice, is it hypocrisy? No, because even though you don't mean it, you mean to mean it. You want to mean it. And this is how you get there. Do you understand? That's not hypocrisy if you're doing something that gets you to where you're able to, to mean it. Okay. So did you know that if you habitually form your muscles into smiles as opposed to a sad face, it triggers uh, chemicals in your brain that, that release happiness and peace and joy? Your face was designed by God to smile. And when you do, it makes you feel the fruit of the Spirit. This shows you how much your body is connected to your well-being. And that's what Paul says. So now let me say something about neuroscience that confirms the Bible, though they're 2,000 years too late. Paul already knew this, but whoop-de-doo, they've discovered something <laughs> that Paul already said. But it's called, uh, it's called uh, neuroplasticity. And this is the, what they've discovered is that you can literally change the structure of your brain by changing the way you think. So uh, a, a, a well-known neuroscientist took obsessive compulsive patients and did a brain scan. And certain regions of their brain were terribly damaged because of their habituated uh, OCD behavior. They told them that every time they wanted to wash their hands to, to start thinking a different thought, even if they didn't believe the thought, just think it. And they did it for three weeks, came back, and they did a brain scan, and a good portion of their brain had been healed and was normal in a period of three weeks. So what, what, what the brain, so by thinking and changing your thinking and your feeling, you literally can regroove your brain because you see anxiety and depression reside in the grooves of your brain and in your heart muscle. And, and it is, they trigger, those grooves trigger terrible thoughts and feelings in your soul without you choosing to do that because they're ingrained habits in your brain and your heart. So what you have to do is to present your brain and your heart muscle to God as an instrument of shalom instead of an instrument of, of unrighteousness, namely fragmentation, anxiety, and depression. Now, um, does that, do you understand the idea of taking a part of your body and presenting it to God in the sense that you begin to practice something, fasting with the stomach, uh, and so on. You begin to practice something that focuses on that region of the body. And what that does is it, it, re, it disagrooves the bad habits and ingrooves good habits that are conducive to a good life. Does that make sense to you? Now let's take a look at, thank you, oh, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> now let's ta I take a look at uh, one of the four habits that I do, I've done every day and that have been absolutely uh, 
life-giving. Uh, I found out that Cody has been using this particular practice for uh, several years, and, and his, he said it's been life-changing for him, and it, and it was one of the four things that changed my life. Now, here, background, um, what we've learned is that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, is actually true. And one of the most important things, apart from just purely a genetic inheritance issue, but apart from that, uh, one of the most important aspects that causes anxiety and depression is your self-talk. It's the way you talk to yourself. Now, your self-talk is actually triggered by habit-forming grooves that you have put in your brain and your heart muscle, but we'll focus on the brain. Your brain has neurons that, wired, that fire together and form a, a group. So you have the thought, I'm such a doggone loser. I'm never gonna have any friends. And you, and you, form, and you think that several times, and guess what? The first time you think it, it forms a groove in your brain, but it's not very deep. But if you keep thinking it, those neurons keep firing together and the strength of their connection, I'm calling that a groove, gets stronger and stronger and harder to get rid of so that it becomes a habit. And so you're, you get up in the morning and you're not doing anything. You're getting your coffee and you're just you stumbling. You're in the third stage of anesthesia. And, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden, bang. God, I'm such, such a loser. And you know what's terrible about this? Our, when our self-talk becomes habituated, it is, when it's triggered, the message of our self-talk is so habitual that we don't notice it. it. It flies under the radar. And then all of a sudden we're depressed or afraid. And we wonder, what the heck happened? And it's largely the way that you talk to yourself that you're not aware of. And so this practice is designed to help you get rid of those grooves and replace them with peaceful and joyful self-talk. Does that make sense? So here's the practice. It's called the four-step solution uh, in the literature. And step one is called relabel. So you have, uh, 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 you notice that, that you're engaging and talking to yourself. And, you, and you're saying, oh gosh, what if this happens? Uh, oh, it's gonna be horrible. I've gotta, I've, gotta, I've gotta plan to make sure that I'm prepared if that happens. Well, then you stop, and, and, you, and you, you, what you do is you label it. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've seen you before. Yeah, you're, you come around, you're a habit. And you got, you're nothing but a, but a habit, habitual brain message. You're just a triggered brain message that you have nothing to do with reality. You're just a habit. That's all you are. So that's step number one. Now, you know where it says, take every thought captive to Christ? Well, this is the way that you do that. And you invite the Holy Spirit to help you do this. 
Psalm 139, 24 to 26. So folks, the first thing you have to do is get up in the morning and act throughout the day, ask the Spirit to help you become aware of your self-talk so that it doesn't fly under the radar, so you can attend to it. Then when you find one, you label it as nothing but what it really is. It, they, they really don't have anything to do with reality unless it's you self-fulfill it, and that's your issue. But, but these things, these things are just brain messages. The second thing you do is you reframe them. And in the book, I've, the psychologists have discovered 10 thought distorters, ways of, of having distorted self-talk that aren't real, they distort reality. Uh, I, can't, I can't go over all of them, but one of them is all or nothing thinking which is the idea that you do something extremely well, but you made one mistake, and all you can think of is the mistake that you made, and you say to yourself, God, what a failure I am. Okay, my favorite one uh, that I learned from my mom is called catastrophizing, and that's where you what if, and you go, oh my gosh, that I just can't happen. It's gonna be horrible, and you spend all your time all your life living in the future, making sure things don't happen, and you miss your life. That was me. And I tell you, I, don't, I haven't done that for five years because I began this practice and others, and after a while, I, I, my wife will say, honey, what do you have going this week? And I say to her, I don't have any idea. Now, Sunday, I look at my schedule and plan. You have to plan. So I look at it, but once I make sure that I've got down Monday what I need to do for that day, I don't think about the rest of the week. So I don't worry about the future anymore because I'm living in the present. That's one of the reasons why I've had more fun than you can imagine preaching here this weekend. No kidding. Uh, because I'm, I'm here. I'm present now. I don't worry about the future. All right. So, so you label it one of the 10, and what you ought to do is try to find out which one or two is, is your specialty, <laughs> and get rid of it, label, label it as not, nothing but catastrophizing. So that takes the power out of it. Step three, you have to refocus on something else. This is the most important of the steps for me. What I was doing was ruminating and getting down in the mud and fighting with the thought, walking around the block 75 to 100 times, and trying to argue against it and, and fight it. And you, this is stupid thought, but of course what I was really doing was digging the groove that triggers that thought deeper. And I was making it harder for the thought not to be habitually triggered all day long. What I needed to do was to get away from it. Well, how do you do that? You refocus on something that gets you into flow. And flow is when you're involved in something so you lose track of time. And it doesn't have to be spiritual. It could be reading a novel. It can be going online and checking some websites. It could be watching a TV show. It, it could be sewing for a short period of time. It could be fiddling with some crossword puzzles. It doesn't matter. What you have to do when you find and label that self-talk is you've got to get away from it and focus on something else. Now, when I first started this, I had to focus for about 20 minutes. 
Now it's 30 seconds. I mean, I because it's a habit. But early on, you got to, now after you've kind of been able to get away from it for 15 minutes or so, uh, then you can come back to it, and it's not intimidating at that time, and you can reevaluate. That's the fourth step, how you did. Now, remember, uh, I want to give you hope, and I'm going to close now, uh, and I'm running, I've run out of time, but I want to give you hope that this works in, in two ways. First, I want to read a quote from the, uh, one of the book reviews on Amazon.com, which have been overwhelming to me. Overwhelming. But this one dear sister says this, I am indebted uh, to God for this book. In a horrible anxiety attack, just a day after reading the first three chapters, I was able to use what I had learned and was able to enjoy the quiet that I had so longed for. She put this thing in, into practice, and in a day, she was able to get rid of the anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that's typical. Now, the second thing I want you to remember is that if you begin to do these four practices or one of them that I presented here, I want you to remember it's not going to do you a bit of good, except for this gal, uh, for, you know, four weeks, couple of months, because you're going to be lousy at it. But that's just the way it is with forming any habit. It takes time to get good at it. So don't be discouraged and stop if you're lousy at, at first. Why do you have to do this? Because anxiety is largely an ingrained, learned habit that can be unlearned with the right practices, and the four-step solution is one of them. I love you all. I love your church. If you're a sufferer, my heart is so, so with you because I, I know the horror of it, and I want to close in prayer. I'm sorry I've gone over just a little bit here. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually really anxious about it. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I just, I love this church. I love these people. I pray, I pray for your mercy on anyone in here that's struggling. And we do thank you that we have hope because, because you are alive and real, and we're grateful. My goodness gracious, what, what we have to look forward to when we die is going to be unbelievable. And we're really thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.